Good evening, everybody. This is Rich Duncan with the Ink Heist Podcast, and tonight I'm joined by my co-host, Laurel Hightower, and Shane Douglas-Keene. He will be joining us here shortly, and tonight we're excited to speak with the author, Andrew Piper, whose book, The Residence, was recently released. Um, there's a lot of great buzz about that book. It was a highly anticipated one for us as well, and uh, how are you doing today, Andrew? I'm doing okay. It's a very um, it's a very strange day, isn't it? And a very strange uh, time. But um, so to say, to say, uh, you know, blithely, hey, how's it going? I'm doing good. Is is a little bit complicated, but I, I, you know, yeah. all things considered, it's great to hear from you, and I'm doing okay. That's good. Yeah, we're glad to hear it. And yeah, like you said, things have been pretty crazy for a while now. Um, yeah. But so, yeah, I totally get where you're coming from. But, um, you know, we usually kickstart our show by having our guests kind of give a, a new kid at school speech. So for listeners who might not be aware of you or your works, if you could just, you know, kind of give a little, like I said, a new kid at school speech and uh, let people know kind of what you write and, you know, things like that. Sure, sure. I um, I am. uh. Uh, a novelist, and I have been very, very lucky. And my my proudest um, professional accomplishment, I suppose, uh, not personal but professional, has been I've been able to to do this um, write books that is full time since I uh, was about 30 years old. So it's about you know 20 years now, and um and and still sort of still running. And um, since I finished um graduated from law school uh, here in Toronto and I've never practiced as a lawyer and that's the second greatest professional accomplishment of my life <laughs> and, um, and it's tonight uh, as we're talking and, and, and taping this together it is a, uh, uh, game seven in the uh, NBA finals where the Raptors are against the Celtics so if you hear uh, through my third floor office window, sort of screams or shouts or moans of disappointment. That will just be the city uh, expressing itself here in Toronto as it either wins or loses against Boston tonight. Yeah, the, the Trailblazers already lost their shots. This is Shane, Andrew. Hey, Shane, how are you? Good, good. Sorry, I'm a little bit late. It is crazy on the West Coast. Yeah, no kidding. Are you, are you doing okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. We're fine. This is this is we just call this September these days. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so, I didn't I didn't mean to interrupt interrupt your thread. I just wanted to make sure everyone knew I was here. So. Oh yeah, that's no, that's good. It's 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 good that you're here, and and um, I think that's. I think that's the, the you know the, the the gist of my of my introduction you know so that yeah that I've been doing this for a while the the, the residence is my tenth novel and um, uh, sort of unbelievably uh, you know I've been doing it for the, for this long and um, I remember having a this is just an aside it's not so much a, a bio thing but I remember when I was thirty you know twenty years ago thinking having an insight or an intuition or something that that's proven a thing to be right which is Oh yeah, you know the the writing racket. It's it's bizarre. It's, it, there's no real money in it, and there's not you know there's not obviously compelling reasons why to, you sh- ought to pursue it. But if you can 
it's kind of a like a heavyweight bout. Like you know, if you can if you can stay in it a long time, that's the that's what you're trying to do, as opposed to maybe actors or or other artists who are trying to like you know break through in a moment in a dramatic way. Writing is kind of a hey, you know, if you, if you can sort of reach an age of gray hair and and uh, uh, you know sort of elderly stature and still say hey, I'm still doing it. That's the name of the game. So I I think I'm moving into that. Into that moment, <laughs> yes. I, you know. See, I, I got there a lot faster than you, Andrew, because, <laughs> because I I didn't start until I was already way grayer than you are. Well, that's the other good thing. That's the other good thing in the, in this business. You can you can you can start whenever you want. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, Laurel. No, you're good. I'm I'm glad we got that out of the way quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that is actually, a, I really like that way of looking at it because you're right. I mean, I think when writers start getting into this, that they can get a little discouraged, you know, that things seem to move slowly, but, but it is a, a lot of it is an accumulation of a back catalog and, and just, you know, reaching, reaching people and reaching an audience. And, and like you said, just kind of staying in the ring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it's true. And I, I think I remember when I was, um, you know, first first publishing and my my um my first novel, my, not my first book. My first book was a collection of short stories that was published with a small uh small press here in in Canada where I live. Um, but my first my first novel was published by a uh, um by HarperCollins here in Canada, and then and then it was you know w- with big publishers in the states and the UK and stuff. And so I was very lucky to have a a first novel that did that did that first novel thing that it, it is like, Oh, you know, so that one of those hype de- debut novel moments. But um, I, I remember sort of like, you know, sort of at that time, there's a lot of talk about, Oh, um, publishing is very youth centric and, and, and focused on the sexy and the young and the, and the present, you know, sort of physically presentable and stuff like that. And I, I don't know, maybe that's I'm obviously to some degree, that's still true, but I, I feel like, that that maybe has dwindled somewhat in in a good way that that it's that publishing is less focused on um, that kind of you know the younger the better or the newer the better and and just on the books that that you know a good book um, a book a good book can sort of rise to the top on its own merits maybe somewhat easier now than 20 years ago but that that I don't know maybe you disagree but that I could be wrong about that. I think that there's I think there's a lot to that. And we've kind of, you know, explored a little bit of this because it's interesting to hear different writers uh, opinions of, you know, how that works versus like, um, you know, the larger presses uh, versus indie Mm -hmm. presses and that kind of thing. Uh, And I think I do think that you're right on that, too. I think that and that may be something that has to do with, um, you know, just a just a greater expanding marketplace and more voices, you know, kind of because, if if you have a market that's focused solely on writing by a very small group of, you know, just like young people with X amount of experience, that's not going to be very varied. Um, mm-hmm. You're not going to be hearing a lot of different voices in that. So I do think that that's uh, one of the things that we're really getting to see now is with the expansion of indie publishing and self-publishing, too. I mean, it's where, you know, there's a lot out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. One thing I wanted to ask you, Andrew, and I, I don't even know if this is really relevant because I don't know enough about it, but a lot of people 
like with publishing, you know, because Canada's, you know, part of North America, and sometimes we kind of think of that as synonymous, but I feel like, you know, it might be a little different that there's like some authors in Canada that haven't, you know, been published in the U.S., and I didn't know if that was something fast for you or, you know, if when you signed with HarperCons for your book, that was already in the works. And I only ask because... Like, I recently discovered this writer, Patrick, I think his name is Senecal, and he's from mm-hmm. Montreal. And mm-hmm. uh, I read his book, Seven Days, which I absolutely loved. And I thought that was, like, his first book. But then when I did some digging, I saw it was released, like, I think almost over a decade ago in Canada. And that he's had, like, a huge body of work. This just happened to be, like, his first book that, you know, made it to the U.S. Yeah, it, okay, well, that's, you know... The, that question you raise is interesting because it's almost like a Russian doll um, kind mm-hmm. of open one up and, oh, there's another one and another one. Um, so, you know, just as a, you know, just a just a broad way into answering that um, uh, as a, you know, as a, yeah, as a Canadian growing up, it was always we were always and continue to participate in and admire and and as creators aspire to participate in American culture because it's, it's, you know, at its, at its highest levels, it is so, um, so well accomplished and appealing. And, and there is undeniably the allure of, of a large marketplace. You know, the United States is a population of 330 million. Um, Canada is, you know, sort of one tenth or one ninth of that roughly the population of California. So big enough that it's, you know, it has an old, its own marketplace. So Canadian, I have a number of colleagues who are, you know, do quite well publishing exclusively in Canada for one reason or another. Um, but, you know, who who just for one reason or another, again, have not been published by, uh, in the United States with, a, with an American publisher. And, but having said that, you know, the complicated thing is that the Canadian marketplace is just small enough that you can't, with a, maybe a handful of exceptions, you can't aspire to make a living publishing fiction in Canada if you're not published outside of Canada in one way or another. And so that's the dilemma in many ways for on, a, on the commercial side of it for the Canadian writer. That is, there's a lot of advantages. We have pretty good... Uh, you know, a grant system uh, through the Canada Council and, and provinces that support writers through grants, stuff like that. You know, we live in a country that has uh, public health care. So, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of inherent um, intrinsic uh, advantages to to living in this country and being an artist. Um, but it's a marketplace question. So there's always a looking south of the border and and, and thinking, oh, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be great to have an, an American audience because that would be one way to, you know, ensure or at least ensure in the in the immediate term that you could maybe, uh, you know, make a living at this. But then, of course, you then, you you know, if you're lucky enough to have a book published in the States, you realize, oh, my God, with a big market comes enormous um competition and difficulty and and there's so many titles and both with the big publishers and independent publishers and online publishing and and ebooks and audiobooks so you know you're sort of like well welcome to the circus you know it, it gets it gets pretty hectic um 
but I, you know, it's it is a funny it is a funny place, Canada, in that respect, because there's a number of a number a number of writers here who would regularly, as a matter of as a matter of course, would kick my ass on you know the sort of the bestseller list, um, you know, just just within Canada, are unknown, utterly utterly unknown outside of Canada. And then there's someone someone like me who occupies a middle space of being, um, I think, sort of reasonably, relatively quite well known and, and well sold within Canada and 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 known um, to a relatively lesser degree in the States, but still is published in the United States with with, you know, uh, with indip- or larger presses in the States. And then you have and then you have genuine stars like, Laura, uh, you know, sort of. Um, uh, uh, Linwood Barkley, off the top of my head, you know, who's like, oh, you, you, you can maybe he he does so well that you would sort of forget that he is Canadian. So it's a it's a place where you can sort of um, some people, uh, you know, see you as only Canadian, and sometimes you can sort of you can see you can there's Canadian writers writers you can forget are even Canadian because they kind of uh, you know superseded that. So. At the end of the day, I'm not sure if it's an advantage or disadvantage. I remember being at a party once where an American uh, friend of mine said, you know, if you were if you lived in like, you know, if you had an American passport and you lived in whatever, upstate New York or anywhere than where you live, you'd be a you'd be a star. And I was like, for a moment, I embraced that. And I was like, but then I was like, no, you're drunk. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's as simple as that. Yeah, I thought I I just thought it was interesting because you know, like I said, that's just kind of my I guess ignorance of the publishing industry in that like I always just kind of assumed that you know like you know it was all kind of like one big thing like you know if there was you know a Canadian author that you know and say he was signed to you know a big publisher that it would automatically be the U S or, you know, if they had a lot of success in Canada, that it would automatically mean being published in the U S. So I always just found it interesting and I appreciate you kind of explaining it. Cause like I said, I always kind of thought it was just a given and kind of like vice versa, you know, like if there was somebody who's like a successful indie writer in the U S that they would automatically have a presence in Canada. Yeah, you know, it, 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 just as in a, it, to add to that, you know, it it is funny. I agree with you. You'd sort of, and I think it largely does work that way. And I think people like ourselves, who are interested in in this genre, in this space, and the literature that that unites us, and 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 the interests that we share, we don't really think about the borders in that way because we are just yeah, just always kind of like you know the pig truffle hunting and and. Ooh, this you know I've heard this is good. You want you just you just attracted the stuff that your friends say is good. And um, but as a marketplace, it's a bit different. And I'll give you a, a, a sort of a quick example of the differences that that you know I've had amazing publicists. So I, this is not by no means a complaint at all. But I, I have had uh, publicists in the in the in the past at big houses in New York. Who were like, oh, you know, this is before, you know pre-COVID. Who were like, oh, you know, Andrew, uh, um, yeah, we'd love to have you down for this conference or this uh, event or this uh, some convention, but you know, it's really far for you to go from Canada. And 
my response is always like, you know, I live in Toronto. It's like a, it's a, it's an hour flight to New York. I, I can get to, you know, I can fly to Denver quicker than someone in LA can. Like it, in other words, it wasn't a geographical distance. It was a conceptual distance. It's like, there is still that sense maybe among some that, Oh, Canada, it's far away. It's, it's a, you know, people live in igloos and stuff. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you, you do find yourself confronting like, Oh, you know what? It's, it's, you know, we're actually super close and it's, you know, where I am, especially it gets super easy to get where all of you live. than probably a lot of your friends and family. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I kind of feel that way and, you know, I don't want to harp on it too much, but I, I kind of, I guess too, like you had said, like, I never really thought of that way either because, you know, I live kind of in like central upstate New York, like not far from, you know, the Canadian border. So I kind of never, that's probably why I never really thought of it that way. Kind of like you said, in your experience, you know, you're not really that far away. No. And then, um, you know, I just wanted to uh, switch gears and um, talk about your book, The Residence. And, you know, I think Laurel will agree with me like that. That was such a great book. I'm a huge fan of historical horror and kind of how you were able to weave in like real historical fact with I got to I got to admit, like we were talking, you know, while we were reading it not that long ago. And at first, you know, without spoiling it for anybody, you know, at first I'm like, OK, yeah, this is kind of spooky. And then like slowly as you work your way through, like that was some of the scariest, most frightening stuff I've read in a while. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful to hear. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I strongly agree. And I had no I, I, you know, I waited until the end and kind of read some of the end notes there about uh, some, you know, what what you included about the 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 history of it and everything. And I was like, good God, I had no idea the White House was that creepy. Yeah, I just didn't know there was that much going on. There. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because neither did I. You know, I, I um I was a vague I was vaguely aware of the kind of um you know, in my visits to Washington, the kind of touristy, uh, you know, kind of haunted walks version of the White House, you know, okay, yeah, Lincoln's ghost uh, allegedly still haunts the hallways, that kind of, you know, every every old hotel, every old bar has stories like that. And um, that doesn't mean I'm still, you know, I'm still very much interested and attracted to those stories. But I wasn't, um, I wasn't looking to write a story about the White House at all. I was kind of doing what probably I'm guessing what you guys do, which is, you know, when you're bored and you're on the computer, you kind of find yourself kind of Googling into rabbit holes. And I was I was just Googling away, rabbit holing into haunted houses. And the White House came up and I was like, yeah, 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 I've seen that before. Um, I know those stories. And but some somehow I went down a different channel and bumped into not Franklin Pierce, the president who I ended up writing about, but Jane Pierce, the first lady, his wife. And it was uh, some some site that was talking about how Jane Pierce um, lost. This is all true. Uh, you know, lost all three of her children in the months preceding her husband's inauguration. 
And when she finally moved into the White House, she removed herself to the second floor uh, where the residential quarters were and refused to you know, publicly appear or remove herself from those quarters. And she spent all of her time writing letters to her most recently deceased son, Benny, uh, pleading with him to return to her. And according to her letters, which I ended up seeking it out and reading, he did. He he, And she didn't, to my mind, in my interpretation, she wasn't saying, uh, you know, my son appeared to me in a, you know, in a spectral form or a comforting presence. But he was physically, she said, he's here. He's by the bed. He's in the room. And as soon as I uh, as soon as I read that, I thought, OK, this just graduated from time wasting to I think there's a novel here. Because just that whole situation of a woman who um, was in a house, never mind the White House, was in a house that she didn't want to be. Her husband lied to her uh, and that that lie led to her being brought to this place where she didn't want to be. She'd lost every all three of her children and was in a position of great vulnerability and, and grief and refused to play the game. You know, like that that's. That's something I I admired right away about Jane is that she didn't pretend for the sake of Washington society or the pageantry of the presidency. She didn't pretend that she wasn't hurt and wounded and um, unable to go on. She she was very honest about her grief. And I I thought that was, you know, in a way, um, extremely brave. And and, um, so... And then, of course, she also had a very strong spiritualist uh, uh, interest. And you know, she had seances in the, in, in the White House. We know that. That's a historical uh, historical fact. So I just thought, wow, like when you combine the situation, the awful misfortune of this family, this couple who move into the White House childless, their marriage, you know, teetering on the brink, and then – and then have uh, the wife or the the, the, you know, the mother claim that, oh, yeah, I brought my my dead son and he's here. I just thought, is this is is no one else found this before? <laughs> like, you know, this just, it just struck me as like, oh, OK, I'm going to jump in here and write this. Well, I'm glad that you did, because I mean, yeah. I, that's what I was thinking, you know, as I was reading through it is that, yeah, I, I must have missed out on some of this history, but also think that it was just I feel like what what you did with it um, was very, you know, it all felt very like historically authentic. And I know, you know, it seems like you did a lot of research with it, but also what you were able to add to it with the human elements, which is just you kind of have to have if you're if you're portraying grief as part of it. And that came across very well. And also, you know, as Rich said, yeah, some of the stuff like <laughs> some of the supernatural stuff that happened, I was just like throwing my Kindle across the room for a minute. To, <laughs> to <get up>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, exactly. Sorry, Andrew. That makes me happy. That makes me happy. <laughs> um, I so I don't know. How much you know you can go into it without because we definitely don't want to do any spoilers this is an awesome book and everyone needs to come at it you know um without having anything spoiled for them but how 
I mean, in your research, how much of that, how much of the supernatural that you utilized in the book was an expansion versus what you kind of saw in the historical record? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, the what we here here I'll, here's what we know, or at least here's what I know um, in terms of the historical record, uh, and and then you know, as you as you mentioned, of course, it the residence is a horror novel and it's a thriller, and so it there's all manner of invention there. But um, uh, what we know is that, as, our, as, as I've mentioned, Jane and Franklin Pierce um, lost all three of their children, the, the, the last of whom, Benny, their eldest son, um, and they're up until up until his death, um, their sole surviving son, died in a bizarre train derailment just weeks before Franklin's inauguration. He was the sole fatality of this train accident. So this train that was traveling um, to Concord, uh, New Hampshire, which was at that time the Pierce's, where the Pierce's had their personal residence, uh, it was in winter, but it was a clear day. There's no, uh, that I could find, any um, suggested reason why there would be a derailment. And so it was just, it was a, there was no storm or, or, or uh, 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 you know, an explosion or anything of the kind. So the train derails, falls down a conver- uh, into a culvert, and Benny is the only fatality. Th- three or four weeks later, Franklin, is, at his inauguration, is at that time the first American president, and as far as I know, um, none have done this since, was the first American president to refuse his oath um, on a Bible. He chose instead a a, a, a legal text, which of which the Constitution permits. But uh, it, to me, given that he was no, he wasn't. Franklin was never a strongly religious man prior to that, but he attended church, and um, that rejection of the Bible I read as uh, a rejection of God, uh, a, a a man who felt betrayed by God prior to this moment you know why would god take all all of my children and yet on the other hand exalt me to this high office none of which i blame franklin for frankly and um so we we know that we know as well that um it was a rainy day his the day of his inauguration and many of the people it was a very sparse crowd um but many of the people who attended his inauguration died um from uh, from pneumonia and uh, 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 plague and 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 um, from infection from his inauguration, it was, it was a deadly uh, inauguration. It was it was pla- plagued from the very beginning, and we know as well that upon moving into the White House, Jane, uh, sometime later, uh, invited the Fox sisters, who were as you probably. No, uh, were at that time. This is 1853. The the Franklin the, the Pierce administration was a one-term presidency, and uh, up until the current president, probably the least well-regarded American presidency in history. And uh, he was there from 1853 to 1857. And they Jane at Jane's invitation, the Fox sisters, who were who were the most celebrated mediums of their time. Uh, attended and 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 conducted a séance in the White House at Jane's invitation, and although the Fox sisters, Fox sisters by conventional understanding had been revealed since as as hoaxes or disproven, 
when you kind of read deeper into the Fox sisters as I have, um, you know, they, they, they were people who, um, inter- you know, sort of com- uh, confessed to being hoaxes and then, then subsequently kind of retracted that. So um, to my mind, it's not settled history that the Fox sisters were, were hoaxes or fakes. It's certainly true that they did this stuff with their, um, this rapping and, and talking to spirits using their uh, clicking of their joint, their, their toe joints. We know that they had a game and they had a play, but it's not clear to me anyway that the youngest, in particular, Kate Fox, didn't have a genuine gift. Um, and finally, we do know that it was a one-term presidency, and that that many historians um, interpret Franklin as being unique in that he withdrew his name from the primaries to be considered for re-election, which is extraordinarily, as you, as you, as you know, extraordinary and unusual. I mean, an incumbent president has all manner of advantage uh, in gain, you know, having a second term. Franklin seems to have had little interest. It's almost like he wanted to get out of there. And, and to me, that suggested a man and a couple who were in a haunted house and the White House it's really the only haunted house where you're not allowed to leave, right? Like you, once you're there, you, you convention insists that yeah. you stay there. And so it's that the off the top of my head. Heyman right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice to get him out? Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, I'd never really thought of it that way. Now that you mention it, you know, that it's kind of a, you know, like you said, it's a house that you can't leave. Like once you're there, you know, yeah. being a president, you're expected to stay there. I that hadn't even dawned on me at first, but now that you mention it, it kind of adds, it kind of adds like another element to that story. You know, on top of the grief and everything else that you know, they can't leave. I mean, and two, the thing with the Fox sisters, I found that to be a really cool and interesting thing, only because, like, they they kind of grew up, I think, like, 30 minutes from where I currently live now. Mm-hmm. And um, the interesting thing is that you mentioned, you know, they came out as hoaxers and then kind of backtracked on that. And it's kind of like, well, is it all fake? Is there some realness to it? Is that, like, the... Uh, museum of their house they have like a little shack that's built over the like foundation of the original house is supposedly that house before they had moved into it you know had a notorious history in the town and all that stuff so all that kind of stuff mixed in with you know the historical elements like you said of you know jane inviting them there and you know the grief that they're going through it all just made it very, very tense, like I said. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but like the the combination of all of those different things, it made for a really a really powerful story, I think. Thank you. No, I thanks so much. I, I really appreciate that. And I don't not I don't say that just on the level of like um uh you know, accepting a compliment, but I I, I say that because it's it's so um, to me, and, and and again, I suspect on some different level you you may feel the same. It's like it's 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 always sort of exciting and strange to 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 think about 
familiar things in a different way, you know. And so, you know, the White House, I'm a Canadian, but, you know, American mythology has always been a larger factor in Canadians, you know, imaginary life than 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 than, you know, typically Canadian stories and mythology because it's just bigger and it's it's richer and it's it's supported by movies and and and, and when you, but when then when you think about the White House, it is so it's so weird, you know, it, it's just so weird compared to other, you know, Washington Monument. Here's the here's the here's the Lincoln Monument. Okay, it's a statue. Here's the Washington Mar- Monument. It's a tower. Here's you know the here's the Congress. Okay, it's full of you know lying monkeys. But when you think of like you know the the White House, it's supposed to, it's a house. It's supposed to be how people live there, and yet it's surrounded by floodlights, and yet you can't go in, and yet it's an office, and yet it's a museum, and yet it's a it's a symbol, and yet people come and go, and it's and the hallways are lined with pictures and portraits of the people who lived there before. I mean, it, it's all it's all deeply gothic, it, and yet it's all kind of presented with this pageantry and decoration of sort of a national history. And then, of course, the natural history is is in large part um, half told. You know, it's it's a house that was that's called the People's House. And yet it was, for the large part, built by slave labor. So, you know, the people who weren't considered people. It, it's it's a it's a it's a, a sort of a house of mirrors of paradoxes and contradictions and and hypocrisies. Uh, it, it's just the, uh, and then and then we expect these. You know, every four or eight years we sort of expect a family to move in there and pretend to be normal. It's it's uh it's really strange. It, it really is. And I've often thought, you know, especially about the kids that move in there, because, I mean, Jane obviously was she was such an interesting character, too, because you don't you know, you sort of tend to see these couples and it appears that they are, for the most part, kind of, uh, you know, uh, partners in it, like. The first lady typically is fairly on board with what she's doing. You know, she's got her own role and typically appears supportive. And but that's, you know, these are all like adult choices, you know. And so for kids, it's it just seems like, gosh, you get uprooted and you're thrown in this place that, like you say, it's kind of it's a showpiece and it's your home, but it doesn't really feel like your home. Um, and then, yeah, with Jane, for her to just be completely rejecting all of that and pretty bitter, um, about being forced to be in there, you know, because yeah, it's, it's not her home. And even in the best of circumstances, it wouldn't have been particularly comfortable. No, it, it, it wasn't comfortable for a whole bunch of reasons. And, and, and then Jane, and Jane in her, in her letters, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, delineates, you know, all the ways that she found Washington uncomfortable. Like, you know, uh, the Washington that we know today, um, for all of its, you know, uh, political faults perhaps but it's it's a it's still a place where you can you know there's comfortable hotels and good restaurants and and uh etc um the washington of 1853 was somewhat different you know it, it was it was a, at least from jane's perspective and, and other people at the time it had a lot of um it was muddier it was had a lot more you know per capita taverns and and uh gin mills and 
uh, sort of boo, you know, the theaters were not classy theaters. The theaters were were sort of had you know uh, magicians at best and 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 um, you know va- low level vaudeville. It was not it was not Broadway or aspired to be that. And it was in other words, it was very it was a vulgar outside of the operations of and perhaps including the operations of government. It was as a city very vulgar and muddy and dirty and full of uh, taverns and prostitutes and whiskey and and things that Jane found uh, unsettling and off-putting. And it was also filled with congressmen, and it was exclusively men at that time, of course, um, and senators, etc., and all of their staff, all men. It was men living away from their families. And they were living in these, uh, typically in these rented kind of um, uh, rooming houses where they had their meals cooked by, you know, uh, uh, you know, a woman who kind of ran the house. They all lived in like, you know, Mrs. Bush's, Mrs. Hill's, Mrs. Smith's, Mrs. All these men away from home, these congressmen were living in these fraternities, essentially. And they were, you know, they were away from home, getting drunk, enjoying the attentions of of you know, professional women. Uh, and Jane found it all extremely upsetting. And, 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 and so that, that was part of, I didn't really sort of paint that too much in the novel because I wanted to keep the novel really intimate and cl- as close as I could on Franklin and Jane and sort of not, um, not bring in too much of, I didn't want to sort of try to paint some kind of movie like here's, Here's a here's a tapestry of Washington at the time, or you know, grand political uh, stakes. I wanted to keep it tight focused, but I did want to sh- to sort of uh, you know communicate how Jane found the place very vulgar, and she wasn't wrong. You know, the, again, the the Washington of 1853 was uh, pretty pretty sort of you know skanky place. Yeah, I that is not something that I knew either. Um, but I can definitely see that. I mean, that makes sense that the setup would be that way. And also, again, explains, you know, part of why Jane would find that distasteful. But I do. I, I think that was a good choice to to keep the setting there within the White House as opposed to kind of expanding it beyond the city. Because, yes, I mean, it, it just it is it's it's a very intimate haunting. It's very and it's funny, too, because there are several instances um, where you can really tell how alone they are, you know, in particular, as things get more frightening. Um, they're they're just very, very alone in a huge house with lots of people running through it all the time. Um, yeah. But it, yeah, I mean, they're just they're completely closed off from all of those people. Yeah, I had I had some um, editorial notes along the way, um, you know, um, when you know the manuscript manuscript was in sort of an earlier form of people being like, is it is okay? I, I get what you're doing, but you know, shouldn't shouldn't we have kind of more staff? I think people who are kind of used to like the West Wing TV show, right, or um, uh, you know, television shows that are, that have depicted a more modern White House shouldn't there be more people you know shouldn't there be just kind of more staff waiting with trays of you know i don't know food or <laughs> and stuff and 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 from my research the white house of 1853 was a very it wasn't like that you know it was a 
there was an element of grandeur about it. It was a, a it was a a mansion, but it, this is before it had a, a a fourth floor added. It wasn't as physically large. It was built on a literal swamp. Uh, it was it was famously uh, and almost uh, um, unstoppably or irredeemably cold and damp. No matter how many fires you had burning, people complained about. Oh, I was always cold in there, and there wasn't a lot of staff at that time. You know, you might have a guard or two, um, maybe one at the door and one kind of following the president around. There was not the same mechanized, highly choreographed secret service, and there wasn't the same number of staff. And there wasn't a West Wing. You know, there wasn't that same large offices. The offices were con- were housed within the, the mansion itself. And as opposed to having, as, as there is now, a sort of a separate, complete, you know, separate compound. And so it was a pretty small, it was a pretty modest operation. So such that, um, you know, someone kind of walking up to the window and rapping on it or something like that would not be at all beyond uh, possibility. And um, it, it, which is sort of puzzling, I think, to readers now where it's like, oh, you know, wait a minute. Um, how could someone run out? And this is, I hope, not too much of a, 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 you know, a spoiler, but, you know, toward the end of the novel, there are people who run out screaming out of the front, that famous front door that we see in the news every night. Um, and at that time, that that's something that could have happened and really kind of nobody would have noticed. I hadn't thought about that. I figured they, they just didn't much care if anyone noticed by that point. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if some of the people that are in there now ran out screaming? I would really love that. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, if these hauntings are still hanging out there, maybe they can. Yeah. yeah. They can assist us. You know, that would be nice. <laughs> um, yeah. So, well, that's I mean, I've I just think that there's so much there's so many layers into this because, again, it, it is, you know, it's historical. And, and like Rich, I really I thought it was cool. The inclusion of like the Fox sisters in there. And a lot of that stuff, but it, you know, it, it, it is again. It's very much a human novel. It's very, very much about um, Franklin and and Jane. And there were just some really, really great kind of ideas in here. Um, uh, in particular, the way that it dovetailed with Franklin's presidency and kind of the time that the nation was in, you know, and and the fact that kind of almost his besetting sin, there was kind of an inaction. Mm-hmm. Um, there was so much going on in the country and there was so much strife and there, you know, the, the big issue was slavery and um, you can see with him like a sort of a desire to do something right, but also basically just to kind of keep the status quo, which is what he was brought in for. Um, and that is just, I really, I like how that kind of plays into their relationship and also how he deals with the supernatural things as they come up. Um, so I was wondering how much, you know, did you kind of get to know, the man of Franklin Pierce, or was this a lot of it, what you kind of built out of um, as you're building these characters? Oh, that's a great question. I, I, um, I saw Franklin and through my, you know, sort of through my research and, and just as an aside, you know, for, for me, I'm not like a, um, I have colleagues who are, who are historical novelists and they, they'll, they'll, you know, work, for three, two, three, four years before beginning a novel, just working on the research side of it. And 
and they'll sort of almost disappear, perhaps permanently down some kind of research hole, you know, and, and I was I was resolved to not join them there, you know, to sort of I, I wanted to like, no, you know, as I mentioned, you know, to sort of keep it keep it focused and, and, and always remember that you're telling a story here and not trying to, you know, sort of prove that you could get a Ph.D. in history. But so my my take on on Franklin is that in my way into his character was that he was in many ways he was I think of him as like the first proto-telegenic American president and what I mean by that is that he was this is of course before the time of television or even even in newspapers before pictures but he was always described as notably handsome he presented very well he was strong broad-shouldered he had strong legs uh women and men alike commented on his physical attractiveness um he was well spoken he wasn't a great speech maker but he he had an authority in other words he looked like someone who should be president even if he didn't have and i think as his presidency showed even if he didn't have the skills to to occupy that office, even if he didn't have the fortitude and intelligence and um, bravery and, and and conviction that that office ought to uh, contain, he seemed like he would have. And so he had a career that all along he was like, look, you know, he was given an automatic, uh, you know, sort of generalship in the American-Mexican War prior to um his time in the White House, where he performed disastrously. I mean, he falled off, he fell off his horse. He uh, screwed up his leg for the rest of his life. His his own soldiers sort of, you know, mocked him for, um, you know, he, he fell off his horse and passed out in a just before a major battle. I mean, he wasn't a joke, but he just he just never he never proved his promise was warranted. And so into the White House he goes and. Here's where my sympathy kicks in because he went into the White House, you know, having lost all of his children. And yet he wasn't allowed, unlike Jane, he wasn't allowed to grieve. You know, he wasn't allowed to just go into his apartment and refuse to come out and refuse to have socials and teas and and uh, go to dinners. He had to be president. So here's a man who looks the part, but is not actually unlike, say, Abraham Lincoln. To two administrations later, who is actually equipped with the moral fortitude to, to be president. He looked the part but didn't have the stuff. He has lost all of his children. His wife is uh, deeply grieving and, and is convinced there's a that there's a ghost in the place. He is about as alone as a man could possibly be. And then bearing down on him is the question of, of a country that is uh beginning to fall apart and he was he was chosen to be the president by the then the power of the democratic party because he would just just be the custodian just don't do anything don't break it don't change anything just kind of keep things going and hopefully this whole slavery thing will will sort itself out and franklin was not in in favor of slavery he was not um he was morally opposed to it but he felt that that it would solve itself over time. He was, of course, 
very wrong in that. And that was his huge failing. But I, that that was my to, to you know, this is a long way of answering your, your question, Laurel, that 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 I, what interested me about Franklin was that he was a man in many ways before his time, almost a kind of a time traveler, almost like a, you know, almost like a Dan Quayle or, a, you know, or or someone like that who was sort of like, yeah, this this guy, he's, you know, as 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 Donald Trump will often say about people like he's from central casting, he's central casting. And <laughs> Franklin Pierce was central casting in 1853. And I, I my heart breaks for the guy because he was, um, of course, these people are not should not be given these positions on based on casting. They should be given these positions based on capacity. And um, he was limited in that regard, and in many ways, for very human human reasons. Yeah, and it, this this is just sort of making me think. And I I want to say that it's Fahrenheit 451 that they that they say it, and there's just some sort of throwaway reference to a uh, a political campaign, a presidential campaign, and there's such a clear depiction of you've got one candidate who you know, is just basically unattractive and, and kind of balding and stooped and he doesn't speak up. And then you've got this, you know, really attractive uh, guy who, again, yeah, looks like he could be from central casting. And it's just very obvious from the way it's written, like the non-attractive guy has no chance. Like it's just based solely on on their photogenic capability. Yeah, and that's that. Yeah, I you know, and that is that that's that is rough on Pierce, too, because that, you know, to be brought into that without even any expectation that you're going to do anything, you know, as you say, it's like, just don't break it. Just hold, hold the place for the next guy. Right. And and then if you, and yes, exactly. And then, and then if, um, and then if you, you sort of marry as again, hopefully not, I'm not saying too much, but you know, to, to marry that line, that storyline with, you know, what we understand of, you know, of, demonic opportunity that you know d- demons as as entities or or whatever they are uh fallen angels but what 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 we do know about accounts of of the demonic and in, in their interaction within the human is that they seek opportunities of vulnerability or weakness and typically when it comes to things like possession or it, it's it's typically emotional upset grief uh, uh depression addiction these are ways in for um you know it, it, people who are who who have p- experiences with demonic possession are typically not super high functioning uh up until the moment of the demon you know, knocking on the door very very happy uh you know people like there's there's usually there's usually something going on in their lives that offer that open the door and franklin was a perfect mark in that he was, um, he you know presented well but didn't have the strength. He was a family man. All really, all he wanted was a wife and a, and, and and a family and to be sort of like a a big shot in a small town like Concord, New Hampshire, and be a, a town solicitor as he was and go for long hikes in the woods. That's all he really. That's that was his scope. That's what he wanted. But he was like, nope, you're the guy. We're 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 putting you in, and. You know, for 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 a demon, he was a perfect recruit because you're you're here's a guy with tremendous weakness who's going into a position of great power, and uh, at a moment in American history of tremendous vulnerability, 
a moment that required genuine leadership. And he was not he was the wrong man, not because he was evil, but because he just didn't have um, the vision and fortitude to 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 turn that ship, to do the right thing, to to, you know, kind of announce himself as pro abolitionist, which he I think in his heart he was. He just didn't feel politically he was allowed to be that. And um, that is, you know, that is catnip for a demon. Yes. Yeah. And that, you know, it is truly uh, when you're talking to about like an open door, um, it's something that's so sort of sad to think about, too, because in particular, someone like Jane, who is is grieving so heavily and is, you know, writing these letters, begging her son to come back to her, you know, she's a completely open door to whatever might come through. And it's so it's it's so sad because it feels almost like that's some sort of a punishment for being vulnerable, which is, you know, not how it should be. But but, yeah, I mean, that's the sort of thing that that does open up opportunities like that. And in particular, in that setting, too, because that was kind of what I was thinking, you know, reading it. There's there's some history, of course, for Jane. But you have to wonder, you know, would it have happened this way? Would it have played out this way if they hadn't ended up in the White House? in this particular spot. Well, I, I see, you know, Jane as it, it, it or at least as I imagine Jane in the novel, I mean, she was, she was um, groomed, you know, from a very early age um, because, uh, you know, the, the character that I, I name is Sir because he has no name. Um, and when Jane asks him as a child, when she sort of summons him in a, in a, in a kind of a Ouija board style except it was a pendulum game, which is a different form of a Ouija board uh, at, at that time in the 1850s. Um, you know, when she's like, oh, what, what's your name? And he has no answer. And he says, call me Sir. So this character, this, this presence through the novel is called Sir. And I, I very intentionally um, never had a character or, or never allowed myself to speak of Sir as a demon. Um it's clear that, you know, he belongs to that, um, you know, that kind of entity. And and so, you know, in, in a mythological way, what I wanted the residents to do was, yes, tell this very intimate, very historically based story of, of this Pierce presidency, a presidency that most people have, have either forgotten or, or never even heard of. Like, he's probably the least, the least well-known American president. But in this... You know, in that moment, I wanted to tell a kind of an origin story of how a demon came to live in the White House and and how it's still there today and how and how based on multiple uh, you know accounts since then in the decades since um, the White House is not just haunted with ghosts, but it, it is a um, it is an afflicted place. And. And that affliction that affliction was born out of, or the opportunity for that affliction came from the Pierces, who were uniquely, uh, uniquely weak. And, and again, it's it's and not not just weak as you know, not that they were bad people, per se, but that they were they were ill-equipped. And I think we, you know, we we I think what I was trying to sort of what I was trying to draw them as is not like, oh, you know, just grief-stricken, sad, weak people, but Hopefully, I was, I, my intention was to draw them as people who were enduring unimaginable grief 
And if anyone has endured grief, um, you feel like in those in those times that you feel alert to other things. You know, I, I don't mean necessarily the demonic or the supernatural, but it feels like you're so raw and so open that you're feeling things that an emotionally healthy and strong productive person doesn't feel do you know what i mean like it, it it's um it's a space where you almost are kind of grief can turn all of us into psychics or something you know because it it just kind of we're so raw and open and the pierces were tremendously raw and open and that's how you know that's how the darkness comes in hmm yeah and that that comes across really well, I think. I, I hadn't thought about it in terms like that, but I, I like how you said that, that uh, grief kind of turns us all into psychics because, yeah, I, I liked, you know, there was a little bit of interplay too um, with the Fox sisters, some some intimation of, you know, why they might have wandered down that path, um, in particular the younger ones. So, yeah, that's, I, I like that. Um. Yeah, I thought that. Go ahead. Sorry. No, Laura. no, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I, I, th I thought that that was really cool as well. And another thing, and I know we kind of already maybe even touched on it, is I kind of like the way that you actually like wrote the story. Is like, and it, it's hard for me to explain, but it's almost like when like the style of voice that you used when you were writing this novel. It almost kind of seemed like from that time period, if that makes sense. And I felt that that kind of like helped, helped, you know, engage me in this story, too. And I thought that that was just a cool thing. I felt like it kind of enhanced the atmosphere in that, like, it felt like the voice that you had used. It felt like it was from that time period. Oh, that, well, that's I th thank you for that, because it, that um, that was a huge Frankly, there was a huge worry to me, you know, because I I, I worried um, I worried about it in hindsight. Frankly, I didn't worry about it too much in advance. I kind of like I, I kind of struck out with that um, with that voice, that storytelling voice uh, for the book. But then at, when I was sort of like, you know, finished the draft, I was like, is this right? Like this whole book could be could be completely jeopardized if. I was wrong in that, and um, or if I didn't, if it, if it didn't strike it right, and, and, and I, you know, you can, you, I think we've all read historical novels that try to explicitly or literally, uh, you know, strike a, a, the voice of that time, whether it's Elizabethan England or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, and it can feel, unless it's absolutely spot on, it can feel hokey. Or uh, like a like mimicry, like bad mimicry. I didn't, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, to have a uh, a modern psychological language, but but feel like it, it, it you know it would have been appropriate to its time. And intuitively, my my, my inclination to, you know to achieve that was um, to keep things to keep the prose really to to keep the prose really 
simple. I don't mean minimal, minimalist per se, because, um, uh, I, but I, to, to keep the prose really um, clear, to make it like almost like a sort of a consomme, you know? <laughs> so, you know. So in the edits, I really tried to comb out any any metaphors or figurative language that that just didn't have to be there. It, I think the residents of all 10 of my novels so far um, is, I know it's the shortest in terms of word count, but it's, I wanted it to be, in terms of the prose, I wanted it to be the most clear and, um, um, uh, you know, sort of, that it didn't allow itself any extraneous, uh, you know, flourishes. And, and that was the way I sort of felt that I would try to, do, to sort of adhere the, the 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 language to primarily Jane to a lesser extent Franklin, but primarily to Jane's point of view, so that the supernatural aspects of the novel, as well as the the period piece, the historical aspects, would feel um, feel real because it's all coming through Jane. It's all coming through this point of view and so it would give this clarity that would feel like oh you're there you're there in 1853 and i wouldn't have to i wouldn't have to try to convince you of that through a whole lot of historical detail you know i, I think histor- mm-hmm. some historical novels try to you know prove their uh you know their 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 worth through okay here's eight pages explaining how uh you know whatever people butchered meat in in the 1920s um <laughs> I, I, well, you know, I didn't want to play that game, so I tried to do it through, yeah, through through the language and and keep it to to not not uh, submit, you know, to sort of um, not allow myself to be tempted by the flourishes of of overly figurative language, so that when the figurative language does occur, um, it would feel like a pop, it would feel it would feel um, seductive and powerful, and so I think. You know, for what it's worth, it's it, it the the residence I think is the most linguistically kind of restrained of all the books. I think that was a really good observation, Rich. And again, Andrew, hearing you kind Thanks. of talking about that, I really because I, I I know what you mean exactly. It's not it was not um, an attempt to sort of mimic the actual writing of the time, which you know which could be quite a bit in the way of flourishing and overriding and sort of things, but to able to be able to invoke that time, just sort of almost more, as you say, Jane's immersion in that time period. Um, mm-hmm. I think that was really effective. Uh, and I, actually I'd like, I'd like to kind of use that opportunity to steer a little bit and talk some about your process because, you know, again, this is something you you've been doing for quite some time and uh, you've got 10 novels under your belt and a collection of short stories. So um I was interested, you know, so when, you know, when you started with the collection of short stories, was that, have you continued to write short fiction or was that something that once you had done that, you started launching into longer fiction and have stuck with that? Or do you have a preference between those? Um, up until very recently, um, uh, it has, that, it was the former, yeah, as you say, you know, I wrote, I wrote um, through my 20s and in my late teens, I was writing short stories and and um, not with a view, never with a view to, you know, this is a a, a career path, 
<laughs> you know, um, that that was, I mean, it makes me laugh because it was laughable, you know, that, that there, um, but because it was like, okay, this is this is something, this is a shape and a form that I feel I can manage. It's it's you know a three thousand four thousand word story. I I I can do that. And then and then I, at the time I was reading a lot of Alice Munro, um, the great short story writer and 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 happens to be Canadian and she she lived down the road from me and that was sort of this bizarre like wow I, I mean a uh, uh, a literal now Nobel Prize winner for literature lived down the road from me and so I was trying to trying to do what she did um, you know unsuccessfully but you know tr- tr- try to write like a you know a whole world in 4,000 words and and it wasn't until um after I finished law school and and I uh, decided to reward myself with um, time away, you know, instead, you know, a lot of my colleagues were like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to backpack through Europe before I, you know, start working at a big law firm. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to move to a small town and write a novel. And, um, <laughs> and, I, and I did. And, and I didn't know. Of course, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know. How, how do you shape a novel? How how do you do that? But. I just sort of, um, uh, I just kind of took the same, the same kind of um, intent, I guess, of of like, I remember I put literally I put like a a little banner over my desk when I was writing my first novel, and it was never you know never be boring, never be boring, and and that I f- I find that sort of helpful, even you know now you know it's a, it, it that's not to say that you should like oh you know just have random things happening um but never be boring is is something that kind of like works against sometimes our inclination to in, overindulge in stuff you know that so so never be boring is is keep the thing moving um uh tell you know sort of share what needs to be shared about characters and and then yeah yeah have things happen you know like i think that was a that was a very early I don't know how I came upon that rule, never be boring, but, and I know I have been boring, so it's not like I've, I've succeeded. But, <laughs> That's but what it, editing is for. <laughs> it's a good rule to, you know, to try to, 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 to aspire to, you know, because it, it kind of reminds you to like, hey, listen, um, you got to make shit happen sometimes. And, and sometimes the shit that you just randomly make happen uh, helps you understand what the character is going to do like how so i sometimes when i teach or have taught pre-covid you know sort of workshops to young writers and stuff i'll often tell them you know when in doubt uh just have something random happen like have an elephant you know burst through the through the door or or um you know have have you know the kid next to you in class kind of have a propellers come out of his head and he flies away why it's not because those (laughs) things are inherently interesting but what's interesting is that how the other characters in your story react to the random surprising thing? That's interesting. And then you're like, oh shit, that kid who was always a, you know, always a non-character or a coward, he's the first one to stand up and protect that girl across the aisle from him. Oh, because he loves her. He's always loved her. That's why he's like, you know, he protects Samantha because he's like, I love Samantha. And I don't want the kid with the propeller in his head to hurt some other. So, when you, you know, when you make random shit happen, it's it can be insightful to you as the writer 
how everyone reacts to the random shit, which is very, very, and I apologize, that was a very sort of um, long, uh, and, and I don't even know if I've, I'm, I'm getting back to, you know, the original question, but it, those were kind of like a, a sort of initial guidelines that I had and still have, and, um, you know, in terms of, in, in, in terms of process, but long way of saying, Laurel, to, an, you know, to answer your first question about short stories, I, I haven't read, written a short story for 10 or 15 years until very recently I, I, I wrote one or I had an idea and I wrote one. I was like, I think this, is this a novel? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think it's, it, I don't think it has the length or I don't think it wants to be. And I sent it to uh, uh, a film producer uh, friend or, or someone who I had meetings with uh, and who was always like, Hey, you know, Andrew, when, you know, you know, you know how film producers sometimes do, they can sort of like, yeah, not this, but, you know, give me a call when you have something else. And um, we've been working on this story. He really liked it. And we've been working on this story. And so it's hopefully, you know, we're going to go out with it shortly as an entree. Using the story is hopefully it's sort of a an entree to a feature film. But it's, I never saw it as that initially, but it's one of those things where sometimes stories my brain is, I think, right now hardwired to novels, and it's why I've I, a couple of times um, speaking of producers, like there's been a couple of projects where people try to um, use my novels as as uh, uh, you know to springboards to TV series, and I I've, oh, I've always been to me it's always been a bit tricky. Like I just I'm kind of a novel guy and a features guy. I don't, I, my brain doesn't naturally think series. It doesn't think eight, eight seasons with 12 episodes. It, that just seems really long to me. And it feels like it would betray that rule of don't be boring, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I, can, I can see there being more risk for that when I think of some of the series that have uh, gone on longer than they should have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But that's, I mean, that's very exciting, too. I I love the idea that it's something that is a short story, you know, that, could, that they can use to springboard into something like that. Because, because you know, that's something that I've seen, too, is that um, writing is, is just almost a completely different art form than putting something on the screen. And I think that's, you know, in large part why it, it can be so hard for people dealing with adaptations, because when they're, you know, in love with a book and you you just can't tell that same story visually. Um, so I, I think it's cool to have the setting where you've got, you know, the the original story and then able to just sort of springboard into the next art form that's related to it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do, too. And, and, and who knows? I mean, I, I, I genuinely don't claim to be an expert on Hollywood or or anything like that, but I have had you know a couple of books that were in development or or, or, or are in development stuff like that. So I, I certainly have like you know like a, a a pinky toe in that water, and I, so and with that pinky toe, um, you know I, I think here's some good news I think for for all of us is that um, I think there's never been a or maybe not never, but it's been a long time since there's been a time as good as this one for writers like ourselves. Uh, you know, that is to say, 
writers in um, in, in genre and specifically horror and who um, who write original stories in horror. It, it, it's kind of like I, I mean, I've been doing this for not super, super long, you know, 20 years, but um, it, it feels like a really robust time, even even in the covid moment for um for people who are looking for stories of the kind that that all of us and i suspect the people who are listening to this now um write or read and so that's that's kind of that's really cool i I have no idea i have some theories but i I don't really know why that is but it, it feels like we're in a moment and um that's really good and 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 and, and laurel to your point you know i think it is cool that we could you know that short stories, I know my agent, my book to film agent is like, yeah, Andrew, like write like short stories. That's good because it they're shorter. It people can read them in a shorter period of time, and you can convey if you can. You don't have to convey the whole story. It has doesn't doesn't have to be a uh, a beat out of a whole feature film. If if you can introduce a, a predicament or a character or a world within two, three, four, five, six thousand words, that can often be enough for their purposes. So it's pretty it's a pretty exciting time for that in that regard. I agree and I'm thrilled. I really can't wait to see everything that comes out of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that from like your own pers- personal experience is that you know you were encouraged with the short stories because like sometimes you'll hear you'll hear differing opinions about short stories. Like sometimes writers, they'll come on and say, you know, like some, there's always stuff on like the horror Twitter community. I don't know if you, if you have seen any of these posts, but I know like a couple months ago, there was a thing about short stories and, you know, sometimes authors will say they're like a harder sell, but it's cool that, in your experience, you know, it might not necessarily be that way. Because I personally, I think short stories are a perfect form, you know, for horror, whether it be novellas or short stories. But I know sometimes, you know, at least the perception is, is that, you know, short stories are a little bit of a harder sell in terms of either a collection or, you know, things like that. Yeah, I think that's I, I, I think that's I think that is true. Uh, you know, if you if, if you view that if you view that that idea from a strictly publishing uh, prospect, I think you know it's always it's always been hard. Well, I mean, F. Scott Fitzgerald made you know tons of money in in, in Hemingway. Like you'd have you'd have to go back to those days when you know people yeah. a lot of money on short stories. But look, the market for short stories in publishing is challenging, but a short a high concept or interesting uh whatever it is like just a really an interesting short story that pops um outside of publishing that is to say as a means of conveying um uh a world for a feature film or a series or something that is or, or an, an audio drama or um something outside of just in and of itself as a text uh i yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's a it's a really good time for that. Now, that's tricky. That's I know that's still a it's still a there's still a thread there that needs to you know move through the the needle. But um, uh, you know, you, you you wouldn't even have said if I had said to my 
booked a film agent 10 years ago, he had written a short story. He'd be like, he, he'd pretend to hang up on me. I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but now, now he's sort of like, okay, send it. I'll read it. So that's a huge step. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like I said, um, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people probably feel this way because I've seen people say it, you know, like, I I love big doorstopper novels, but I also think that, you know, short stories and like novellas and forms like that, they're really effective for horror stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, can I ask you, well, I, I'd love to have like a, a sort of, uh, now that I, now that we're all here together, I mean, what do you, uh, what, in terms of your inclination as a reader, mm-hmm. do you find yourself seeking, um, shorter because you know there's so many more demands on our attention now and and so many things we need to attend to in our lives um do you find that that is compressing your desire or at least shaping your desire for shorter novels or does your you know your space for like the big you know juicy doorstop or does that does, does that remain uh do you want to start laurel um, you go ahead. Okay. For me personally, um, like I pretty much read the same as I always do, even though, like you said, the time constraints are a little bit, you know, crazy, you know, whether it be jobs or just craziness or whatever, I still find myself drawn to those bigger novels And I'll be honest, you know, just within the past couple of years, I've started getting into short stories and novellas and really developed a love for that. Um, So for me, I still like those doorstoppers, but it's got to be like a kind of concept or a plot that kind of grabs me right away. Like if I'm reading the jacket copy and I go, oh, that sounds good. Like, it doesn't bother me if, you know, it's 600 pages or so, you know. Um, But one thing I do think that is cool and I hope kind of becomes like maybe a trend is uh, John F.D. Taff. He he had written a big doorstopper type of novel in The Fearing. It was a very high concept idea. And I think originally he had had it as one individual book. That was, I forget at that time when it was one book, how many pages it was exactly. Um, But over time, you know, working with his publisher, they kind of broke it up into a serial novel. So he had four volumes at first, and then he had written a tie-in later um, that's going to be also be an RPG game, uh, Blood and Brimstone. But he took that one book and he kind of, broke it up into a serial format, kind of like, you know, the Green Mile or um, Michael McDowell's Blackwater series. And that's something that I think is really intriguing, you know, like the serial novella, which I would kind of like to see more of because it's kind of the best of both worlds. You get that same epic story that you would in a doorstopper, but it's broken up into installments. So it's kind of easier to read at any given time and you also kind of look forward to those other installments. Hmm. I'm glad I let you answer first. <laughs> because, <laughs> well, because I mean that that 
kind of I hadn't really thought about that, but that's true. I I feel like it's one of those things. I actually used to really not care for short stories because I felt like I never got there was never enough time for me to get very invested. Um, you know, and I I wanted to really be immersed in a story. And so I I think it was actually Stephen Graham Jones um after all the people lights have gone off when I read that and I was like, Oh, oh no, I'm sorry. These are good short stories, you know? And it, it's one of those things where it's like, it's such a, again, it's a completely different art form. Um, you know, it's telling the story arc in a much shorter frame and it's, it's more just like almost a suggestion of the horror. It leaves a lot more up to the imagination. Um, so I do think from a, like from a time perspective, um, novellas are very appealing. Uh, but, I, I think that if you leave out all the doorstopper ones, if you leave out all the all the big thick ones, you're missing out on the stories that require so much more uh, in the way of tracks and, and just, you know, different notes that are played and to be able to follow that all the way through. Um, and I kind of, you know, I had gotten a little bit addicted to novellas because I was able to go through them so fast and, you know, get through a number and meet goals or, you know, write reviews that I needed to. But then I, then I ran into one, uh, you know, a novel where the pacing was not like intense right off the bat. And I found it such a relief uh, because it was, it was still very compelling, but I was like, Oh, that's right. Not every book has to immediately have like a car chase and six murders in the first 10 pages. (laughs) (laughs) I think with the, with leaving, you know, with definitely leaving the door open for the longer novels like that, you get, you definitely get to sink more into those worlds. And, and that's one of the things that I love too, uh, is character driven and, and, um, you know, world building. So that was kind of a waffly answer as well, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I felt like it makes a uh, sense, Laurel, cause you, that's pretty much the way I felt about it too. I just, I didn't put it into as good a terms as you did. Um, <laughs> But too, yeah, like, also, I think, like, and I, I can't speak for everyone, but it seems like you and I both had similar kind of experiences in that, you know, as you read more and more, you know, either independent horror or just horror in general, you kind of discover more of short stories. But kind of like Laurel said, like, I wasn't even really, when I got into horror, it was always just kind of through more of you know the bigger names like king and stuff like that so i was ex- i was exposed more to like the novels i didn't really have that appreciation of short stories until much later yeah well it, it's interesting too that i i mean i i try not to um um allow these uh perceived voices you know determine what i'm i'm doing too much but it has to be said that, you know, over my, you know, the last, you know, whatever, four or five novels in particular, um, whether it's my, whether it's an agent or, or, or my, you know, the, my editor, you know, it, it tends to be sort of like, you know, the note tends to be, Andrew, get into the story sooner, you know, get into it, get into it. And, and, and I, and I don't write super long books, so it's not even like, I'm like, okay, listen, the story really picks up around page 420. It's not like, you know, I'm not, I'm not asking for a whole lot of patience, but it's almost like, you know, it does feel, whether it's justified or not, I guess that's a, that remains to be determined. 
But it certainly the conventional wisdom is you got to get into the story on you know by page thirty or you're fucked. And and you 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 know just you you can't kind of you can't escape that that imperative entirely. And so rightly or wrongly, I think as as novelists today, at least novelists who aspire to you know um, uh, you know some degree of success in in a in a wider you know marketplace is like how do i tell you know a, a fully a fully involved and, and even maybe even ultimately long like even yes a 600 page novel but i need to get you super fast and like um it does feel like the readership is really impatient now and maybe it's because the world is you know we are all as writers competing now with all manner like you know i have a i have a I have a 13-year-old um, daughter, and she's, like, right now, and she's, like, you know, transfixed by or spends a lot of time on TikTok. Uh, I mean, TikTok is a medium that makes absolutely no sense to me on any on any level. Um, but to her, it's, it, it's a language, right, of sort of like these uh, sort of eight-second looping nonsensical jokes or bits of songs or it's just a – it's like a – just a sort of a chopped salad of psychological bits. And, but that, that is, we'd be fools to not um, accept that that is part of what we're up against now as writers is like, well, how do we, you know, how do we kind of not necessarily like, I, I don't think we should compete directly with TikTok, but how do we kind of, um, uh, compress or, or or make our story appealing to people who are very shortly going to be mature uh, readers who are brought up on TikTok. You know, where where I whereas I was like brought up on like pop songs and horror movies and you know sort of making out at drive-ins and that kind of stuff. My daughter is going to be brought up on eight-second joke videos that she watches 18 times in a row on TikTok. And it, that, that shapes a different brain, I think, in a way. And so, um, and that, that, again, I don't think that that means like, okay, there goes the novel, we're done. But it, it kind of, I think it does demand us to kind of do pretty crazy, magical, super challenging stuff in those first 30 pages that, Certainly Stephen King, uh, for one, um, you know, just to, to focus on him, on him in this genre, never had to do, right? Like, you know, Stephen King, to my, you know, to my reading, is like what's wonderful about him, but but also he does stuff that I don't, I don't know if he'd be able to get away with it if he were a new writer now, in that, you know, he would have like generally a pretty intriguing, uh, you know, sort of opening chapter. And then shit got really quiet for 200 pages, you know, and... And that's cool. I love reading those books, but I don't know if you'd be allowed to do that now. And um, you know, just just from a purely marketplace point of view. Yeah, yeah. because there's a lot there's of a stuff lot. that he gets away with by being Stephen King. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's he's already built that readership and built that. Um, just everybody knows who he is, and so yeah, he can continue to get away with things that 
that maybe the rest of us can't. But when I think about, I mean, you know, the ones, the the really long ones of his, and yeah, there, there are parts where it gets kind of quiet, but so much of that is the character building. Mm-hmm. And, and I would hate to miss out on that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, I, I, I have to say, I hope it doesn't become, you know, completely geared towards, and I, ne- definitely nothing against TikTok, because the other thing is, I feel like, you know, the, that it should adapt, that art should adapt to the generations as they come up to what is appealing to them. Um, you know, so I will be interested to see how that comes about. Um, is she interested in writing? Is she going to, is she going to set a, a trend for us and let us know how that's going to work? Uh, but no, she, well, I don't know. You know, I think she might, she is interested in probably storytelling of some form. You know, it, it, it probably will be in a, of a form and kind that I will, you know, you know, be in my rocking chair and being like, oh, look at that. Isn't that amazing? Uh, um, but, you know, um, <laughs> it'll be different. But um, she loves like. It's it, it, interesting, not not to directly answer this question, but it's interesting. This past summer we were up at our um, we, we a couple of years ago, uh, I bought uh, this, a piece of land in, in the in the northern Ontario uh, on a lake and it's, it's really far away and it's super remote and it's totally beautiful and we built a little little camp there and that's where we spent this past summer because largely because it's it's summer and it's lovely up there and and and, and covid right like just let you know we were very lucky to get away to this place and my daughter had a couple of friends up her age and and we were you know literally literally sitting around the campfire and they were looking at their phones, looking at the phones and like complaining about the reception. And I was like, I didn't put it in these terms, but I kind of like suggested like, you know, put your phones away. Let's tell some stories. And they're like, you know, initially they're like, eh, OK, whatever. But they we sort of got it. We really got into it. And they were like, well, you know, they they were they had never read my books, but they were like they knew that I, that's what I do. And, and they were like, so tell me about, you know, tell us your books. Like just give us like the, just like give us the synopsis. Like just kind of give us the pitch. So I kind of worked through some of my books. I was like, well, okay. So just giving them a synopsis. I just like off the top of my head. And what was really cool, what was really gratifying was how they were like totally fucking into it. They were just like, then what happened? Who, what did she do? How did they, they were, they were into it in a way that um, surprised me. And I'm not saying that in the sense of like, that's because I'm so awesome or my books are so awesome. I'm saying it because they were hungry for story. They were hungry for longer form narrative than the little eight second things that they were feasting on in stuff like talk TikTok. And it reassured me that, you know, that that human consciousness has different appetites, as you say, Laurel. It's not just sure, yeah, I like a sort of a funny little meme and stuff like that. But there that what persists is the human appetite for the long form, rich, character driven story. And I could see it. They were totally there. They were like they were demanding more from every everything I said. It was like we stayed up super super late, and the, the next night we did it again. And so, um, 
I don't think, you know, every time I sort of feel cataclysmic and sort of like, oh, you know, that, that, you know, that's the end of it. You know, that's the end of story. You kind of tell a story to someone who's not used to it and you're, and you realize, no, no, that's what we're all here for. I absolutely love that because, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that's incredibly gratifying on multiple levels as someone who has assisted in raising a teenager, you know, to kind of get that attention, you know, to to get them to to be that involved in it. Um, so, yeah. And, and, you know, I can really see that because in particular, you know, hearkening back to that, as you say, like literally sitting around the campfire, those kinds of ghost stories, you know, that kind of involvement that that just sort of brings you out of what you're used to. Um, so yeah, maybe that's how we need to get people interested. We, we just have big campouts. Yeah, let's do it. Well, and I, uh, I know we've, we've held you on here for quite a while, but I did, I did want to ask at least one more question now that we're sort of on the, on the topic, but um, what is, what is your favorite ghost story? Do you have a favorite one? Ooh, well, you know, um, it's funny you ask that because I was just I was talking to um, someone I'm, I'm I'm working on a, on a different thing with today, but we were both sharing our mutual admiration for um, Peter Straub's Ghost Story. Um, th- that that book uh, is just a masterpiece uh, in my opinion, and, and and it's it's a book that. I haven't read probably since the one and only time I read it in its entirety in hardcover when I was a you know a kid like I, I would have been very much in my probably my early teens I think um, but that book literally haunts me and I don't it's very influential to me and more influential than any of I, I don't mean this in, you know as, as a as a as a you know. A, a, picking on Stephen King or anything like that but you know I think a lot of horror writers rightly so cite Stephen King as a primary primary source but for me the the novel that is kind of like the north star of um smart psychologically driven supernatural fiction is Peter Straub's ghost story oh good choice I like that and I actually really liked the movie adaptation of that too yeah. Um, yeah, it's not different. it's not as bad as people say. Yeah, no, it it's different. Um, but it was I, I thought it was really good. I thought it did a good job of kind of capturing the atmosphere of it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I'm almost I'm almost sorry, Laurel. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say I'm almost kind of embarrassed to say that I have it, but I I still have to read that and watch the movie. That's okay. There's a lot of <laughs> Listen, never, never, I, I mean, never apologize for not having seen or, or read something because there's, I mean, well, I'm forgiving myself because there's so much I haven't seen or read. But uh, if you do, if you do, Rich, sort of find yourself like, you know, th- okay, going back to doorstoppers, it's a bit of a doorstopper, but um, make some space for that. I, 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 I hesitate to guarantee you're li- you'll like it, but I, I'm going to guarantee you'll like it. i'm sure that i will i i've heard i've heard great things about it from so many people you know whose opinions mean a lot to me it's just like you said it's one of those things that there's just so many things out there and you know it's been like even though i've been 
you know, kind of reading and reviewing a lot more horror in the past couple years. I'm still relatively new to it. But like you said, it's one of those things where there's just so many things out there. It's one of those ones where I've heard so many great things, but it's happened to slip through my radar. But maybe for the upcoming Halloween season, I think that'd be a perfect one to read. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that makes me want to make my TBR list for Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, But yeah, um, just... You know, we appreciate having you on, Andrew. We've kept you on here for quite a while. Um, But we've had a great time talking to you. And I was just wondering if there's anything that you have, you know, coming up soon. I know you just released The Resident, so I almost feel bad asking that. Like, you know, what's next, you know, coming (laughs) for readers? But just any kind of projects, whether it be stories or, you know, adaptations or anything that you'd want to share with listeners. Uh, well, it, uh, coming up next, or at least I, I, I've been told that there's, um, I've done a project for uh, Audible, which is, as you know, like the, the, the audio arm of, of Amazon. Um, I, there's a, a, a novel that, that I didn't, I, I initially wrote as maybe the first book in a series, and it was kind of a, an interesting kind of, um, investigative mystery series with a supernatural element and but i was like unsure whether i wanted to write a series you know i was like do i do i want to go down that path and so it kind of stayed on my shelf for a while anyway audible uh, we're doing that as a as a standalone audio book and then um to be followed by and I've, I'm, I'm writing now or finishing writing now the scripts for an audio drama which will be essentially season two a sequel to the book so it'll be so season one as it were is the novel which will be read by you know a reader it'll be an audiobook and then season two will be a drama um of scripts 10 10 half hour scripts written by myself that with like actors and sound effects and music and stuff so it'll be like a a full high production radio drama or audio drama so that's pretty exciting to me i don't know when that's I don't know, they prop, maybe, maybe by the end of this year, more likely at the beginning of next year. But the, the, the book, the book that the, that the first book uh, will hopefully be out this fall. So that, that's up next for me. And that's all new for me. It's a whole new ground, like writing like scripts that are, that's in an audio space where there's no visuals, obviously. It's just voices, dialogue, sound effects, music. Um, th- those are your only tools, and then you have to, you know, you're telling a suspenseful mystery horror story through the, with just with those tools. It's been really, really fun. That, oh, sounds, that sounds excellent. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So I hope, yeah, that that yeah. Whenever that comes out, I mean, I'll, I'll let you all know. But I mean, I think it's probably probably I, I'm guessing early next year. Okay, great. Well, we'll be on the lookout for that. That's I I really. I kind of like the idea of that being like a standalone, sort of a separate thing. Um, that's really cool. Yeah, no, me, uh, me too. Thank you. Well, um, I'm, I'm really excited about that. And uh, to our listeners, uh, you need to pick up the residence. It is very, very creepy, and um, yeah. you know, put something padding around your Kindle or something for when you throw it across the room, like I did. We don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but thank you so much for coming on, Andrew. I really appreciate it. We had a wonderful time talking to you. Oh, me too. Thank you all very much for having me, truly. Absolutely. All right. And Rich, do you want to – are you good? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm, uh, I'm all set, only that I just want to add, you know, kind of like Laurel said, the residents, I feel like it's a perfect, uh, you know, speaking of Halloween TBR list, that's a perfect one to put on there. Terrific. Yes. And, <laughs> yeah, and thank you so much again, Andrew, for coming on the show. Um, we'd be happy to have you back anytime. Oh, uh, it, I would be honored, truly, and thank you so much, guys. I truly appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. Have an awesome night. You too. Take care, guys. Thanks. Bye. Is somebody going to hang the fucking thing? <laughs> <laughs>